0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is episode 13 of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Albert. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. Standard housekeeping. Let's hear it. Everything in this episode and this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be deemed investment advice or personal financial planning advice for you. For that find a properly registered and experienced licensed professional or do your own due diligence really 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 well amen dan you said something yesterday that i thought was pretty interesting we were talking about uh, you know we're at work we're talking about valuations we're talking about the, the world and and you you made the comment they're playing jenga
1: yeah, yep. And we were talking about trading stocks and people investing in the stock market and they are doing it in such an aggressive way and we, we've we been talking a little bit about this in the past about speculation and gambling versus long-term investing and it's like people are playing a game. The The
0: do-it-yourself retailer investors especially we're not seeing it in our clients but we're seeing a lot of do-it-yourself investors and do-it-yourself we'll call them quasi traders day traders you know pointing and clicking with a few dollars on their phone on an app maybe sure um the the level of, of aggressiveness amongst brand new investors is uh, is pretty profound right now and and as you talked about that i mean if if you know for those those who don't know just just look up Jenga. You, you you have a tower of blocks that are three by three, they're three wide, and you build basically a, a a tower. And it starts there. And then you take a piece out from the bottom, one of the bottom layers and you lay it on top. And the goal is to get it as high as possible before it fi- before uh it finally falls down and as it gets higher it gets it to be much more of an exciting game because as the as the tower gets higher it starts kind of teetering and you don't want to be the one who made it fall then you lose you're out that's right yes. so <laughs> it's a very fun game it's a very exciting game and what what struck me in the analogy of, of when we're talking about investing is it's a really good analogy for valuation itself because uh, uh when you look at a business the business doesn't change, but if the, if the business doesn't change and there's the same number of blocks, let's say, and all that's happening is the price is going up, but the business didn't change, the profits didn't change, the revenues didn't change, but the, 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 the tower keeps getting higher, you're having to build that tower with the same number of blocks you had to start with. And the higher it gets, the more precarious things become. Whereas normally, you'd simply build a higher tower by adding new blocks. That would be the stable way to do things. More revenue, more profits, more stability. Make it stronger as you grow it. So as we look at things like valuation, occasionally it gets insane. Yes, it does. And we're seeing that with a few things now. But for today's episode, we were talking about a book written in 2002 about another time when the Jenga Tower got insanely high. By some measures, we, we, we're here in 2020. By some measures, we're approaching that same level in, in some ways. And in other ways, we're, we're not even close. But this book is called Dot Con by John Cassidy. So I'll start with a story in his prologue that he he lays out. This is March of 1999. On the morning of March 30th, 10 million shares of Priceline.com opened on the NASDAQ national market under the symbol PCLN. They were issued at $16 each, but the price immediately jumped to $85. At the close of trading, the stock stood at $68. It had risen 425% on the day. Priceline.com was valued at almost $10 billion, more than United Airlines, Continental Airlines and Northwest Airlines combined. The founder's stake in the company was worth $4.3 billion in one day. There's a quote from David Simmons, an analyst at Digital Video Investments. Quote, it doesn't matter what these companies do or how they're priced. Each new internet IPO is nothing more than red meat to the mad dogs. End quote. Priceline.com started operating on April 6th, 1998, less than a year before it went public. By the end of the year, it had sold slightly more than $35 million of airline tickets, which cost it $36.5 million. That sentence bears rereading. By the end of the year, it had sold slightly more than $35 million worth of airline tickets which cost it $36.5 million. Here was a firm looking for investors that was selling goods for less than it had paid for them and as a result had made a trading loss of more than a million dollars. This loss did not include any of the money Priceline.com had spent developing its website and marketing itself to consumers.
1: And yet the stock price was valued at more than... United Airlines, Continental Airlines, and Northwest Airlines with all their airplanes and infrastructure that all those companies, well-established companies have. And you had Priceline valued at more than that.
0: Yeah, when all these expenditures were accounted for, it had lost more than $54 million. Even that figure wasn't what accountants consider the bottom line. In order to persuade the airlines to supply it with tickets, Priceline.com had given them stock options worth almost $60 million. Putting all of these costs together, the company had lost more than $114 million in 1998. How could a startup retailer that was losing $3 for every dollar it earned come to be valued on its first day as a public company at more than the United Airlines, Continental Airlines, Northwest Airlines put together? The answer to that question, we must investigate what the 19th century British historian Charles McKay called the madness of crowds. Few investors acting in isolation would buy stock in a company like Priceline.com. To be willing to take such a risk, people needed to see others doing the same thing and see them making money doing it. This is exactly what happened. Investors who who bought stock in early internet companies like Netscape, Yahoo and Amazon.com made a lot of money, at least for a while. None of these firms could boast much in the way of revenues when they went public, let alone profits, but that didn't seem to matter. Seeing what was happening, other people started buying internet stocks and other types of stocks too, not because the underlying companies were good businesses with solid earnings prospects, but simply because stock prices were going up. As history has repeatedly demonstrated, this is the point when a rising market turns into a speculative bubble. All speculative bubbles go through four stages, each with its own internal logic. The first stage, which is sometimes referred to as the displacement, starts when something changes people's expectations about the future. A shift in government policy, a discovery, a fabulous new invention. A few well-informed souls try to cash in on the displacement by investing in the new vehicle of speculation, but most investors stay on the sidelines. The early investors make extremely high returns, and this attracts the attention of others. Next comes the boom stage, when prices are rising sharply and skepticism gives way to greed. The sight of easy money being made lures people into the market, which keeps prices rising which in turn attracts more investors. Eventually, those upstanding citizens who haven't joined into the festivities feel left out. Not just left out, they feel like fools. If their daughter's boyfriend, who does nothing all day but sit around and play with his computer, can make $50,000 on his America Online stock, why can't they? Boom passes into euphoria established rules of investing, and often mere common sense are dispensed with. Prices lose all connection with reality. Investors know this situation can't last forever, and they vie to cash in before the bubble bursts. Finally, inevitably, comes the bust. Sometimes there is clear reason for the break. Sometimes the market implodes of its own accord. Either way, prices plummet, speculators and companies go bankrupt, and the economy heads into recession. A few months later, everybody looks back in amazement, asking, how did that happen? The greater fool theory of investing provides part of the answer. Investors ignored the warnings because they had persuaded themselves that there would always be somebody else, a greater fool, ready to buy their Priceline.com stock at a higher price. And for a while, they were proved right. This book tracks the development of the internet bubble and the broader stock market boom of the late 1990s from the period immediately after Second World War when scientists had the first inklings of a decentralized communication network that would be beyond the control of any single authority. The internet is often portrayed as a triumph of American private enterprise, but that is a myth. The U.S. government designed and built the internet, and a European academic invented the application that turned it into a mass medium. Even in the mid-1980s, when the internet had been up and running for almost two decades, most companies dismissed it as an obscure research tool. Not until the early 1990s, when millions of people around the world were already using the network to communicate with each other, did the private sector show much of an interest. In elementary economics textbooks, competition forces people to act rationally. And it also leads to an efficient allocation of resources. But in the real world, where people are judged relative to their peers, competition can have perverse effects. Tip sheet journalism replaces probing reporting, a process that becomes more advanced the longer the bubble persists. Journalists and media companies that are supposed to be objective are themselves benefiting from the bubble. Ditto, economic policymakers. With nobody left to prick them, speculative bubbles tend to go to extremes. A few weeks after Priceline.com's IPO, that's initial public offering when they went public as a stock, its stock reached $150, at which point the tiny company was worth more than the entire U.S. airline industry. Two years later, the stock was trading at less than $2. So that's the prologue. Moving on here, at the end of the 1980s, online communication remained largely the preserve of computer geeks who liked the technical challenge. Things would have stayed this way for longer if it hadn't been for a reserved Englishman living in Switzerland. Suppose all the information stored on computers everywhere were linked, he thought. So basically, even at the end of the 1980s, everything was still very technical related to internet communications and only
1: computer geeks who liked the challenge were really taking advantage of of this medium. Or scientists with who were doing some research and they were using this as a way to communicate
0: Right. right. And there was one Englishman who was living in Switzerland working at CERN. It's a research facility. And the way I understand he talks about a little bit in this book is he had a dream that what if all the information stored on computers everywhere were linked? So every computer connect to every other computer. He had the, I guess, the dream of it, Mm -hmm. and and that got unleashed. And and through, by the time you got to the 90s, he taught me. There's a little bit of history there. I'm skipping over this a little bit. Um, The National Science Foundation ended up being the controlling body of the internet as it was developing there in the early 90s. And by on April 30th, 1995, they called the National Science Foundation. They called it NSFnet was actually closed down and the internet became what we know now as a private sector enterprise. So that was the little like catalyst that started. It had to go public, so to speak, so that everybody had access to it. And that was the beginnings of of what we're talking about here. So here's a chapter here called Popular Capitalism. Speculative bubbles have occurred as far apart as Holland in the 17th century. Florida in the 1920s when we covered John Kenneth Galbraith's book, The Great Crash in 1929, talked about the Florida land bubble. And Japan in the 1980s. I remember movies, you know, back in the late 80s, in the early 90s, they were talking about how a lot of the the themes of movies had had the theme of Japanese corporations
1: taking over America. Die Hard. The Makatomi Corporation.
0: Die Hard. Uh, There was one called Black Rain. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Rising Sun with Sean Connery, Wesley. I mean, it's just, you, you, you saw that theme all throughout movies of the late 80s. Back to the book. No one explanation fits all of them, but some common antecedents have been identified. Many bubbles, such as the 1840s railway mania in England and the Wall Street boom of the 1920s are associated with exciting new inventions that create exaggerated hopes of profits. Parentheses here. In the 1920s, there were radio, taking pictures, and passenger aircraft. End parentheses. War, particularly the end of a war, is another frequent precursor. The South Sea bubble of 1720 followed the peace agreement that finally ended the Hundred-Year War between Britain and France. Here in America, it was after the Civil War that rascals like Jay Gould and Jay Cook organized their speculative pools, which helped send stock prices temporarily, into the stratosphere. And bubbles are usually associated with periods of prosperity, when the future seems bright, investors are cocky, and there's easy access to money and credit. The Japanese bubble of the late 1980s followed 20 years of unprecedented economic success. So he goes back in time a little bit here. Thursday, August 12th, 1982, didn't seem like a momentous day in American history. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell by 0.29 points, closing at, get this, 776.92. Hmm. The fledgling NASDAQ national market fell by 0.93 points to 159.84. Nobody realized it at the time, but when the closing bell rang at the New York Stock Exchange, the last bear market of the 20th century had ended. By the end of 1982, the Dow was trading above 1,000, the greatest bull market ever. One that would see the Dow rise more than tenfold and the NASDAQ rise almost
1: 30-fold was underway. That statement right before, that kind of talks about business cycles. We've used that term in the past about investing for a full business cycle, investing for the long term. The last bear market of the 20th century, the last day of the bear market, that was the end of a market cycle, so to speak. Yes. Is that a way to say it?
0: Yes. Coincidentally, um, I I started my career in the mid 90s, 1994, and I when you're brand new and you're 20, 23 years old and you're, you're you're just excited about learning how to become a financial advisor, you're looking around at all the successful people that came before you. And I would I would ask questions and I would be a sponge and I would ask ask the, the top producing advisors, the most successful advisors that I could find. I would say, hey, when did you start? Tell me your story, yada, yada. And I would ask that question probably for the first 10 years of my career. When I met anybody who was really at the top of their game, we'd go to conferences and I'd seek them out and I'd ask questions. And there was a common thread amongst almost every single one of these top, top advisors. They all had started their career in 1982. And that was very telling to me. After a while, I started realizing, wait a second. Every one of these top producing advisors, these most successful advisors, the people that think their clients think they just hung the moon. Every last one of them almost started their career at the bottom of the stock market in 1982 before and back when you had double digit returns on just about anything. Bonds were paying double digit returns. Stocks were low and they could go nowhere, but up from there. And it really kind of told me the lesson that there's a lot of luck involved in the genius of an, of an advisor, so to speak.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We talk about how the market gets a vote and when, the markets do well when we're talking with when we're visiting with our clients we remind our clients that on those months when they have really strong returns we're not necessarily that smart the market gets a vote the
0: returns don't come from the advisors the returns come from the markets and if you attribute return to your advisor good or bad it's your your advisor's probably not that dumb if it's bad and your advisor's not that smart if it's that great in all probability Back to the book here. An entire generation of newborns would get their driver's licenses before the stock market would see another lengthy downturn. High school students would go to college, get married, have children, and approach middle age to the accompaniment of a rising stock chart. Given the longevity of the bull market, it is hardly surprising that so many Americans came to regard buying stocks as an easy way to get rich. The internet stock mania during the 1990s was like a frenzy on the dance floor at the end of a wedding party. The disc jockey may have prompted the excitement by playing a popular tune, but the real reason that people were singing at the tops of their lungs and waving their hands above their heads was that the free bar had been open all day. (laughs) Putting money into the stock market was seen as a rich man's game. In 1983, the wealthiest 1% of households in America owned 90% of all stocks. Fifteen years later, in 1998 things had changed substantially. Almost half of American households owned stocks, either through individual shareholdings or through mutual funds, and the proportion of stocks owned by that same top 1% had fallen to about 80%. Still a very unequal share, but less so than it used to be. By the way, I I was interested in this. Uh, So from 1983, the wealthiest 1% owned 90% of the stocks, By 1998, 15 years later, they only owned 80% of all stocks. And I looked up a stat, and the the most recent one I could find was in 2013. So seven years ago, the wealthiest 1% owned only 38% of stocks. That's a big shift. That is no longer a rich man's game. That's a major development. I can't imagine what it is now. It's probably a lot less, but this idea that that was that was one of the few things I've seen where things got more fair over the last twenty years. People are always talking about how income has gotten so much so disparate between the, the wealthiest one percent and the rich, or the highest income, but the wealthiest one percent actually own less of the stock market than they used to as a proportion. More, more and more people are having access. Probably four hundred one ks and other things, but and and possibly free stock trading lately. Anyway, but definitely a a factor. At the Back to the book. At the end of 2000, mutual funds contained more money than the banking system, about $7 trillion, of which more than $4 trillion was in stock funds. New funds were being created every day, and the mutual fund listings were taking up almost as much space as the stock table, so they used to print all the stock quotes in the paper. At the start of 2001, the point of absurdity was reached. The number of mutual funds topped 8,000, which meant there were more mutual funds than there were stocks listed on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ combined. I remember that. So shifts gears here a little bit. Between 1946 and 1964, 76 million Americans were born. The baby boomers. In the 1950s, according to this simple narrative, the boomers grew up. In the 1960s, they discovered drugs and rock and roll, and in the 1970s, Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter disillusioned them. In the 1980s and 90s, they had kids, started saving for retirement, and discovered the stock market. Stock markets are like electricity and sewage systems, extremely useful inventions that sometimes go haywire. Stock markets transfer resources from people who have savings they don't know what to do with to businesses that have investment projects they don't have enough money to finance. And stock markets don't just allocate resources, they provide incentives for innovation and hard work. If an entrepreneur sets up a company that does well, he can, he or she can issue stock to investors in an IPO, a process known as going public. IPO stands for Initial Public Offering. The promise of striking it rich in the stock market gets a lot of people out of bed in the morning. The first recorded stock market mania occurred in London in 1720 with this, with this, when the South Sea Company which had been granted a government monopoly on trade with the Spanish colonies in South America, issued stock. In six months, the price of the South Sea Company's shares went from 128 to 1,050. A great wave of speculation took over London, and everybody from Alexander Pope to Isaac Newton to King George got caught up in it. In September 1720, the bubble burst. Stock in the South Sea Company fell by more than 75%, and people, Newton among them, were ruined. Amid a public outcry, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the British equivalent of the Secretary of Treasury, and several directors of the South Sea Company were sent to the Tower of London. The universal deluge of the South Sea, contrary to the old deluge, has drowned all except a few unrighteous men. The United States came late to the game of stock speculation. The New York Stock and Exchange Board opened for business on Wall Street in 1817, but it wasn't until the Civil War and the development of the railroads that large-scale capital raising began. On Thursday, September 18, 1873, they had the first Black Thursday. Fear swept Wall Street and creditors rushed to withdraw their deposits. Several other banks collapsed. Quote, Dread seemed to take possession of the multitude, end quote, the New York Tribune reported. Panic was so widespread that the New York Stock Exchange was forced to close down for 10 days. Public faith in the financial markets was destroyed for a generation. Following the invention of the Federal Reserve System in 1913, there were few lasting recessions. And many economists came to believe that the new science of monetary policy had rendered them obsolete. Financial Weekly hailed a new era without depressions. In September 2000, the same publication would carry front-page headline, quote, Can anything stop this economy? Despite recent signs of a slowdown, expect the economy to remain robust with no recession in sight. End quote. September 2000. September of 2000. Hmm. The mood of optimism spread to the stock market, and millions of people bought shares for the first time, only to be caught out in October 1929. During the internet boom, it became almost unpatriotic to compare the 1990s to the 1920s. That's like that herd mentality. It is. For a generation, though, after 1929, the stock market was once again discredited in the eyes of many Americans. I, I remember when I was starting my career, there were still a lot of people that were alive and retired people that had grown up in the Great Depression. And Their fear of the stock market was just palpable because of what they went through as a child. And even though the stock market had grown so dramatically during the course of their lives, the crash ruined them and scarred them so. And their parents, it just changed their lives so much that they swore off of something for the rest of their lives. And they missed out on huge opportunity for wealth building because of that. That's the danger of these crashes. This idea of, I'll ride it out. In practice, it doesn't always happen that way. Stocks confer ownership in a corporation, which in turn confers the right to receive some of the profit that that firm generates. Usually, most profits are plowed back into the firm to pay for future investment, but some money is also distributed to shareholders in the form of dividend payments. It seems reasonable to expect that a stock's price should reflect the value of the dividends that the firm is likely to pay over the foreseeable future, which in turn depends on its earnings growth earnings or profits. So back to the internet boom. During the internet boom, analyst investors would be forced to invent new ways to value stocks. The vast majority of internet companies made no profits and paid no dividends. If the old formulas were used, they produced an intrinsic value of zero for most internet stocks. Since Wall Street was busy trying to sell these stocks to the public, it didn't advertise this fact, but instead looked for more flexible valuation methods. Given the boundless nature of human ingenuity, especially financially motivated human ingenuity, it was sure to come up with one. Ultimately, it came up with several, but they all shared one attribute. Whatever prices investors were paying for internet stocks, the new valuation methods made them appear reasonable, or almost reasonable. Wow, that's <laughs> that's almost criminal. Indeed. Back to the book. the The bull markets of both the 1980s and the 1990s occurred during periods of low and falling interest rates. In both 1929 and 1987, a rise in interest rates preceded the stock market crash. The historic relationship between monetary policy and the stock market explains why Wall Street watches Alan Greenspan's comments so closely. So this book was written in 2002. Alan Greenspan was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at that time. You'll hear his name a lot through this book. If the Fed chairman even suggests that he and his colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee, F O M C the Fed's policy making arm, so if he even suggests that he and his colleagues might be considering a hike in interest rates, stock market stock prices tend to fall in anticipation. If Greenspan drops the merest hint of lower rates ahead, the market tends to rally. He's like the market soothsayer or the pied piper. There's a huge amount of control, and they wield a lot of influence on on the economy for sure. Probably the greatest governmental influence that exists in the markets. So let's talk about IPOs. In January 1995, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was lingering around 3,800, about the same level it had been a year earlier. During 1994, Alan Greenspan and his colleagues at the Federal Reserve Board had raised short-term interest rates from 3.5%, to 6.5% to slow down the economy and head off a possible revival of inflation. This policy shift prompted Wall Street analysts to reduce their forecast of corporate earnings, which contributed to the stock market's sluggish performance. The thing that investment bankers share with real estate agents is that they are always on the lookout for the next trendy area where big money can be made in fixing up old properties and building new ones. The Internet was just such a neighborhood. During the early 1990s, it was widely seen as a bohemian enclave. But during 1994 and 1995, this attitude changed and the rich started to move in. Quote, it's like the land rush in Oklahoma. End quote. Larry Ellison, the chairman of Oracle, said in February 1995. Another quote. The best spot in the valley goes to the one who gets there first. There was no obvious reason why internet users should be valued so highly, but even at this early stage, internet stock valuation wasn't based on reason. It was based on hope and hype. The new valuation formulas were primarily an attempt to rationalize the fervor of the investors. Quote, this is like a rocket that has been launched. End quote. Eric Schmidt, a senior executive at Sun Microsystems, declared shortly after the Netcom IPO. Quote, there's no one who can stop it. End quote. In mid-July, Netscape published its prospectus and said it intended to sell 3.5 million shares at $12 to $14 each. This was only a provisional estimate. The actual price of a stock issue is never decided until a day or two before the IPO, but but it indicated that Morgan Stanley believed Netscape was worth about $500 million, more than three times the valuation placed on it earlier in the year. So when it came time for the actual issue, Morgan Stanley came and recommended an issue price of $31. And there was a little bit of a back and forth about what was what was the right price. And they settled on $28, which would value Netscape at more than a billion
1: dollars. Now, Morgan Stanley is in the business of putting out these IPOs. So it's to their advantage to have a higher stock listing
0: price. They get a percentage. So, yes, 100%. So there's, there's, they're, they settle on a price of $28 issue, and the stock opens at seventy one. Over the course of the day, Netscape's stock climbed as high as seventy four dollars. Almost fourteen million shares were traded, which meant that each one of the five million shares that was released changed hands nearly three times on average that day. At the close, the stock stood at fifty eight and a quarter, valuing Netscape at two point two billion, almost as much as General Dynamics, the giant defense contractor. On its first day of trading, Netscape's stock has risen. By 108 percent, not bad. Netscape stock continued to astonish. In early December 1995, it reached $170, at which point Netscape was worth almost 6.5 billion dollars. Less than two years before, they were thinking it was worth maybe 200, 500 million. The key to valuing internet stocks was not current earnings, but earnings potential which was vast. This was the opinion of some Morgan Stanley analysts that were pushing to get these internet companies public. This is one of those alternative valuation metrics. Hey, it's not earnings. It's not
1: profits. It's earnings potential. And they're looking to have the price be as high as possible. There's no
0: conflict there at all. Wow. Here's a quote. For now, it's important for companies to nab customers and keep improving product offerings mind share and market share will be crucial. While skeptics like to say that America Online loses money on a cash flow basis, excluding subscriber acquisition costs, once it obtains 5 to 10 million subscribers, it will be able to harvest the cash flow. If a company can build subscribers in a small but rapidly growing market with a compelling economic model and maintain that market share, when the market gets bigger, it should reap good profit margins, end quote. It should. Hey, we'll make it up on volume, even though we lose money, every single customer. This argument would soon be picked up elsewhere on Wall Street and used to justify the unprecedented prices being paid for internet stocks. Instead of concentrating on earnings and revenues, many analysts would promote, quote, mind share and market share as key valuation indicators. It was just the other day I was, I was looking at a stock. Uh, I, I posted on Facebook uh, someone, someone else's post about how... Um, a company who had their 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 stock had tripled in the last four years, but during the last four years, their income went down 5% even though the stock tripled and their debt went up by 93%. And one of the comments I got on the post was, yeah, but what about their market share? And then I read this. Yeah. I mean, it just cracked me up. Back to the book. On the morning of April 12th, 1996, million Yahoo shares started trading under the symbol YHOO. The stock was issued at $13. It opened at $25, rose to $43, and closed at $33, a first-day pop of more than 150%. This was bigger even than Netscape's first-day gain, and it was the second-biggest gain ever for an IPO on the NASDAQ. Despite having just 68 employees. Yahoo was now valued at $850 million. Founders Yang and Philo each own shares worth more than $150 million. Quote, The valuations are into the sphere of surrealism. End quote.
1: David Menlo, president of the IPO Financial Network, commented. Get back to that Jenga game that we talked about in the beginning here. That's some tower.
0: The rise of stocks like America Online, Netscape, and Yahoo was part of a broader phenomenon. In the first first four months of 1996 alone, American households deposited about $100 billion in stock mutual funds. As recently as 1990, these funds had taken in just $12 billion during the entire year. With all this money pouring into the stock market, prices were rising sharply. Between the beginning of 1995 and the end of May 1996, the Dow climbed from 3837 to 5,643, a rise of 45%. Meanwhile, the NASDAQ rose by about 65% from 751 to 1243. A fierce debate developed on Wall Street about whether a speculative bubble was emerging, not just in internet stocks, but
1: in the market at large. So they started talking about speculative bubble back in 96
0: ironically at Morgan Stanley Barton Biggs and Byron wine were uh, uh, they were both 63 years old with gray hair lined faces and and fashion clocks that appeared to have stopped during the Eisenhower presidency he writes here so you've got these guys were the elder statesmen of of research at Morgan Stanley and they were talking about already in 1996 things were kind of out of control it didn't make a lot of sense to them but because they were old with gray hair lined faces and they're you know they're still dressed like it was the 1950s um they're telling the truth but in, in in spite of profits for their firm you know their firm's underwriting all these ipos and making a killing so it was really put them in a tight spot but they were way too early and that was the problem back to the book here one by one and they were just exam- i'm sorry they were just examples of many other experienced analysts that were saying hey caution be careful this is not this doesn't seem reasonable but back to the book one by one most of the bears either changed their views or found themselves shunted aside david shulman an investment strategist at solomon brothers was one of those to recant Throughout most of 1995, Shulman warned that stocks were dangerously overvalued, but in December, he admitted that he had been mistaken and advised investors to buy more stocks. Quote, the powerful 1995 rally in stock prices is not a bubble, but rather a signal that the valuation paradigm has changed. End quote, Shulman wrote. The crux of his argument was that investors were now willing to pay more for stocks because they no longer feared a resurgence of inflation. This was a reasonable argument as far as it went, but Shulman's conversion also had a lot to do with the old Wall Street truism that trying to resist a strongly rising or falling market is folly. Quote, the tape has a way of telling you, end quote, Shulman said a few months later. Quote, if the tape keeps going up every day, something's wrong with the bear's case, end quote. The market's rise silenced most of the remaining voices of caution on Wall Street. Anybody who persisted in questioning was seen as hopelessly antiquated. Some of the most famous investors in the land found themselves cast into this category. In April 1996, Warren Buffett, the sage of Omaha, issued a new class of stock in his company, Berkshire Hathaway. Regular Berkshire Hathaway shares were trading at $34,000 each. Buffett had always refused to split the stock, and the new stock, which was priced at $1,100, was designed to appeal to small investors. In a letter to shareholders, Buffett warned that neither he nor his longtime partner, Charlie Munger, quote, would currently buy shares, end quote, in Berkshire Hathaway, nor would they recommend that their families or friends do so. They're issuing shares of stock. To appeal to new investors, but their letter says, don't buy our company. It's overvalued. Wow. Many mutual fund managers carried on buying stocks, even though they believed them to be overvalued, which was not necessarily irrational. At the end of every quarter, fund managers are assessed relative to their peers in a series of published league tables. In this environment, following the herd is often the optimal strategy, especially during a bull market. If stock prices continue to rise during a given quarter, the fund manager who keeps all his money in the market will look clever at the end of it. Even if the market crashes and the fund manager's stocks do badly, most of his competitors will look equally stupid, and so he will probably retain his job. Jeremy Grantham talks about this as career risk. If you're going to do the right thing, but you're different than the herd, you're going to be judged and you may, that you're taking a risk. And you're either going to be a hero or you're going to be a loser because you're doing something different than everybody else. And that's the risk that every professional faces. You either just do what everybody else is doing, which can cause a crash or a bubble, or you follow something prudent and then be strong. Be a great communicator with with people so that they understand what you're doing and why, because
1: it is a risk. And some of these markets, knowing too much can actually hurt you and make your job that much more difficult and the ignorant person has no trouble making easy money where that professional they're riding
0: the wave at the moment and as we see we know how the story ends i mean but yeah i mean everybody's doing great while the party's going and then when the music stops it's going to be a different deal so back to the book here a short-term mindset creates this issue This is where the trouble begins and ends. It forces bubbles to persist and increases volatility, eventually ending badly for the poor investors who arrived late to the party. They talk about this in The Wolf of Wall Street. By the time you learn about it, it's over. By the time the average person on the street knows a story of a a stock market, it's usually already late in the party. The people that got in early, the people that were paying attention early, they're the ones that benefited the most, the people that get in late, chasing the past returns. Oh, wow, look, that's the top stock in the last week. I think I should buy it, or the last stop, top stock in the last month, or the last year, or the last three years. Boy, do you think that now's the time to buy this thing that's already a 1,000 times its profits? Yeah, I think I'll get in, because everybody else has been
1: making money. It's doing well. Yeah, but here's a case where everybody okay. benefited from it, because this is 1996. People are talking about Yeah, it's about. still early. And And it it ran in 97, 98, 99. You're an idiot. That's right. So trapped trapped in this logic, the vast majority
0: of fund managers tend to keep buying stocks regardless of their prices, which makes the market even more overvalued. At some point, people stop thinking for themselves and start copying others because they have decided it is in their best self-interest to do so. It is this behavior that generates speculative bubbles. And once the bubbles get going, they tend to feed on themselves. And when the increases in stock prices drawing ever more people into the stock market? Quote, a fad is a bubble if the contagion of the fad occurs through price. People are attracted by observed price movements. End quote. Robert Schiller, an economist at Yale, explained in his 1989 book, Market Volatility. Every quarter, the pressure grew on fund managers to find the internet religion. In the end, few were able to resist the call. The real coup was marketing internet stocks to individual investors, doctors, dentists, cab drivers, and all sorts of other people. A critical element in individual investing in internet stocks was the internet itself, which created a virtual community of risk-takers where none had existed before. In the past, the typical individual investor was a fellow sitting at his kitchen table with a copy of the Wall Street Journal and perhaps an annual report. If he wanted to discuss his portfolio, he would call his broker, who, assuming he was honest, would advise against dramatic gestures. In the internet era, this picture wasn't as outdated as a black and white television. Armed with an account at E-Trade, Ameritrade, or any other dozens of other online brokerages, the individual investor had the information, the technical capacity, and the moral support to become a professional speculator click of the mouse, and he could display his portfolio. Another few clicks and he could buy and sell stocks with electronic confirmation of his trades dispatched within seconds. If he wanted reassurance about his investment strategy or simply to swap gossip about his trades, he could go to financial websites like The Motley Fool or RagingBull.com where he could exchange notes with
1: thousands of like-minded souls. That echo chamber. Effect where you have many, many people with the same thoughts, and it hasn't really changed.
0: Just today, it's in different media. It's in social media. There's private groups of all likes. For example, on Facebook, for people who are trading cryptocurrency, trading. There's probably a, there's probably a Tesla shareholder group. There's probably an Apple shareholder group. There's all kinds of trading strategy shareholder groups. There's the groups we participate in that are more broad, but nonetheless, you still have a lot of people basically telling each other, you go, man, go do it. Yeah, 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 I agree with you because I'm doing the same thing. And it, it's a self, it can become a self-fulfilling thing for a while. The financial chat rooms were important because they placed individual investors in a group setting where they were more likely to take risks and act like copycats. In April 1995, the Motley Fool set up a bulletin board devoted to I Omega. A small firm based in Roy, Utah. iOmega was, wasn't an internet startup, but from an investor's perspective, it was the next best thing. A technology company with a nifty new product the Zip Drive, a storage device with many times more capacity than a floppy disk. Between May 1995 and May 1996, iOmega was one of the best performing stocks on the NASDAQ, going from less than $5 to more than $50. The Motley Fool chat room wasn't the only factor behind this precipitous rise. iOmega's zip drive received strong reviews from the computer press, but it surely played a role. The bulletin board provided a forum for investors to exchange views and discuss iOmega's future. Whenever anybody had the temerity to post a message questioning iOmega's valuation or mentioning the fact that bigger, better finance competitors were moving into the same market, they were quickly drowned out with upbeat counter-arguments. The iOmega fad provided a textbook case of how a speculative bubble can form. The stock became one of the most talked about in the country. Even journalists were not immune to the hype. One New York magazine writer, a seasoned reporter with enough gray hairs to know better, was talk- talked into investing a good deal of his savings in iOmega by a fellow commuter on the Metro North. The bubble burst in June 1996 when, in just a few days and for no apparent reason, iOmega's stock fell by more than half. "Quote: Is there a reason for concern here that most of some of us don't know about? Help," end quote. An anguished investor wrote on the Motley Fool. Shifting gears here a little bit, I'm skipping around. But by late 1996, Alan Greenspan, the Fed chairman, had he reached a point where he started to have, have concerns about the stock market. But he he made comments that he wasn't really looking to raise rates. That he he talks about it in the book here. Wall Street had taken measure of its man. Greenspan was concerned about the stock market, but not concerned enough to raise interest rates. A few weeks later, at the start of 1997, the Dow took off again. And by the second week of February, it topped 7,000. Now for perspective, in May of 96, the Dow was at 56.43. So from May to February, it rose 24%. So we're into 1997 now. Now, what's interesting about this February 1997 is it hit top Mm 7,000. You and I have seen research that talks about, uh, from Schiller, from Hussman, that talks about how, and from from dshort.com, that talks about the correlation between valuations and the results 12 years later. Well, here's a great example. The valuations, I looked this up. The valuations in February of 1997 implied that the Dow would have a 0% return for the next 10 or 12 years. And interestingly enough, at the bottom of the market 12 years later, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was again below 7,000, bottoming at 64.69 on March 6th, 2009. So the valuations in early 1997 told the tale of those long-term returns. It doesn't tell you the story along the way. The Dow hit 10,000 once, went back down to around seven, then hit 14,000, and then went back down below 7,000. But point to point... It was spot on.
1: That's maddening to know that information. To How do you deal with that? And how do you, as an investor, make good decisions for yourself?
0: It definitely keeps things from being boring. Hmm. So now we get into a chapter called The New Economy. The wave of internet stock issues accompanied a renewed rally in the broader market. In the first six months of 1997, the Dow rose by another 7% to above 6,800. On Independence Day, Louis Rukeyser, the host of Wall Street Week, a long-running show that goes out on PBS every Friday evening, celebrated the Dow's push towards 7,000. My, oh my, you talk about a joyous Fourth of July, he told his viewers. The world of money hasn't had such a festive celebration since Alexander Hamilton was arguing with Thomas Jefferson. Rukeyser, a courtly, white-haired figure who looked and sounded as if he had stepped out of Calvin Coolidge's cabinet, was an exception to the generation gap on Wall Street. He was as just as bullish as any 28-year-old mutual fund manager. Wall Street Week wasn't his only stock market venture. He also published a monthly investment newsletter and organized investment conferences that attracted thousands of paying visitors. Hmm. No conflict there at all. Kaiser had reason to crow about the U.S. economy. In the first quarter of 1997, the gross domestic product grew at an annual rate of more than 5%, its best performance in more than nine years. The consumer price index rose at an annual rate of just 2.2%, so inflation was low. In April, the unemployment rate fell to 4.9%, its lowest rate since 1973. Americans were understandably optimistic. In June, consumer confidence reached its highest level since 1969. Even the official productivity figures finally seemed to be picking up. It was just helping things go because where's the bad news? There's just nothing to, to people didn't have anything to look at and to to inspire caution in any way, shape, or form. There was one bit of negative news, despite the recent a recent uptick, the average hourly rage of production workers after adjusting for inflation had hardly increased at all since 1973, accounting to some measures it had fallen. So wages weren't keeping up with inflation, really. They were barely keeping up with inflation for quite a long, over 20 years. Credit card payments and other forms of consumer debt were growing strongly as many families took out extra loans to finance their spending. The media didn't linger over these trends. Instead, it produced a glut of articles arguing that it was a, quote, new economy, one in which the old rules of economics no longer applied. Business Week, the weekly Bible of corporate America, led the way in popularizing this argument. In December of 1996, Michael Mandel, a Harvard Ph.D. in economics who served as Business Week's economics editor, wrote an article entitled, quote, The triumph of the new economy. All mass movements need an ideology to rally around. The idea that the Internet was transforming the American economy proved a seductive one for stock market bulls. Wall Street analysts began to pepper their investment circulars with references to the new economy and the economic benefits of technology. From a historical perspective, none of this was surprising. Speculative bubbles and idolization of businessmen invariably go together, as do speculative bubbles and talk of, quote, a new era. The new economy arguments of the 1990s replicated those made during the 1920s when they were known as the new economics. In the fall of 1928, Herbert Hoover, soon to become the nation's 31st president, declared that the end of poverty was in sight. Around the same time, John Moody, the head of Moody's rating agency, published an article in Atlantic Monthly entitled, The New Era in Wall Street. Moody didn't restrict himself to finance. Quote, civilization is taking on new aspects. End quote, he wrote. Quote, we are Only now beginning to realize, perhaps, that this modern mechanistic civilization in which we live is now in the process of perfecting itself, end quote. This is 1928. Within a few years of those words being written, the civilization that Moody referred to had given rise to the Great Depression and Adolf Hitler. It was one thing for journalists in Wall Street stock. to argue that technology had transformed the economy, but new economy thinking had also penetrated to the highest reaches of the American government. The Clinton administration had decided that a hands-off attitude to the Internet was in the country's strategic interest. Online commerce was shaping up to be one of the biggest industries in the 21st century, and American companies dominated it. The only threat to this American Hegemony. hegemony Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Was the possibility that foreign governments would seek to boost their own firms under the guise of imposing national standards on online commerce. As long as the internet remained a government-free zone, it would be difficult to introduce this sort of protectionism. The most influential proponent of the new economy doctrine, although he carefully avoided using the phrase, was Alan Greenspan who had continued to resist pressure from his colleagues at the Fed to raise interest rates beyond a quarter-point rate hike that was introduced in March 1997. In taking this position, Greenspan committed himself to a policy stance that had proved untenable for one of his predecessors during an earlier speculative boom. At the start of 1929, Roy Young, the then-chairman of the Fed, turned down a senior colleague's request for a sharp, incisive action to quell the speculation that had caused the Dow to double in two years, fearing that... Raising interest rates might cause a crash rather than prevent one, Young instead pleaded with the big banks to lend less money to speculators. This policy, which was known as direct pressure, proved ineffective. As stock prices continued to rise in the spring and summer of 1929, Young became demoralized. The Fed could only brace for the inevitable collapse, he said. But this hands-off policy didn't last. It is a property of speculative booms from tulip mania to the Japanese stock market and real estate bubbles of the 1980s that they don't remain contained in one sector. Eventually, they go to such extremes that they distort behavior throughout the economy. This is what happened in 1929, and it forced the Fed to act. In August, Young, against his better judgment, raised the interest rate that the Fed charges commercial banks for loans. A couple of months later, the stock market crashed and Young's reputation was destroyed. Greenspan was well aware of Young's fate. In deciding to let the stock market boom take its course, he took an educated gamble that even if the stock market did eventually crash, he would be able to deal with it. This decision was largely based on his experience following the stock market crash of 1987 when the Fed pumped more money into the economy and successfully prevented a recession. If there was another crash, the Fed could do the same thing again. Its big mistake in 1929, Greenspan believed, had come after the stock market crash when it failed to cut interest rates aggressively enough to revive the patient. Quote, there's no guarantee that even if you get a 1929, you'll end up with a 1932, end quote he told a former colleague. One of the oldest sayings on Wall Street is, don't fight the Fed. Once it became clear that Greenspan had aligned himself with the forces of the new economy, even more of the bears retired from the battlefield. Quote, everybody is tired of being bearish and being wrong, end quote. Barton Biggs told a reporter who, got, who caught up with him while he was puttering around in his Connecticut garden in the summer of 1997. The clients don't want to raise cash, he said. And the portfolio managers who are competing against the market index don't want their superiors telling them to raise cash. As stock prices kept going up, more renowned investors were publicly embarrassed. In July 1997, George Soros told a German magazine that the presence of so many inexperienced investors could lead to an international stock market crash. So George Soros billionaire who made his money running a giant hedge fund. He was a very successful global investor, especially back then. There was also a media bubble. In January 1998, the month Newsweek revealed the Whitewater prosecutor was investigating charges that President Clinton had had a sexual relationship with White House intern. The Dow moved back above 8000 1998 was a year that internet fever turned into an epidemic, with investors of all types succumbing. In just 12 months, America Online stock rose by 593%. Yahoo's stock rose by 584%, and Amazon.com stock rose by an astounding 970%. Old media companies sought desperately to clamor aboard the internet bandwagon. The Walt Disney Company took a stake in Infoseek, the search engine, and also created the Go Network as a potential rival to Yahoo and America Online. NBC invested in CNET's Snap site. Mere mention of the word "internet" was now enough to send investors into conniptions. In April, the Dow broke through nine thousand.
1: Jeez. You said the, the just mere, merely mentioning the word "internet," and people get excited and that frothing feeling. A few years ago, it was the word of the day was blockchain. Oh yeah,
0: if you said if for a while, it, yeah. There were companies changing their name to add the word blockchain.
1: And they actually, their price of their stock went up. For a while, yeah. So in
0: April, the Dow broke through 9,000. And KTEL International, the mail order music business best known for its Hooked on Classics series. This is how new economy KTEL was. Hooked on Classics came out in like the late 70s, early 80s on 8-track tape. They announced that it would soon start distributing its compilations of old hits over the internet. Before the announcement, KTEL's thinly traded stock was below $7. During the next 10 days, it quadrupled. On April 21, after KTEL announced a a stock split to further enhance the availability and affordability of the stock, it jumped another $12 to 41.58. Wow. Bearish journalists, like bearish analysts, were largely ignored. The truth was that few Americans wanted to read negative pieces about the stock market. Journalism, like all commodities, is subject to the laws of supply and demand. As the demand for skeptical reporting dropped, the supply fell back to match it. Similarly, as the demand for upbeat coverage increased, the supply expanded to meet it. I've said this for years. News media is a for-profit enterprise. And the thing they need more than anything else is attention.
1: Ratings are the goal. Not balanced reporting. Not balanced reporting. You don't get both sides of the argument. If it gets
0: ratings, you get that. But if, it's, if you stop getting the ratings, you have to become more extreme and more sensational. This is exactly what was going on. They participated in creating this bubble, and they'll participate in creating volatility because drama sells. He talks about how there were all these magazines that showed up and all these trade magazines surrounding the internet just because they weren't trying to cash in on the craze. The appearance of so many magazines devoted to the same subject was a classic sign of the speculative boom approaching its peak. During the mania for railways in the 1840s England, the railways press expanded to include 14 new weekly papers and two new daily papers, one for morning and one for evening. The list of railway titles included the Railway World, Railway Express, Railway Examiner, Railway Globe, the Railway Standard, Railway Mail, Railway Engine, and Railway Telegraph, the Railway Register. And following the financial crash of 1847, most of those publications perished. It happened then, it happened with the internet, all over the place. Like so many of their countrymen, America's journalists were enveloped in the speculative bubble up to their necks. In June 1998, Goldman Sachs issued stock in Inc. Tomy, a Silicon Valley search engine. Inc. Tomy operated in a crowded market, and during the past two years, its losses had outstripped its revenues. On its first day of trading, the stock doubled. <laughs> The following day, Amazon.com announced plans to sell CDs as well as books. Its stock, which earlier, by the way, CDs, not certificates of deposit. Compact discs. Compact discs. Okay. This is the way music used to be, you know, way back in the day. <laughs> music was on these little discs. Its stock, which earlier in the month had been trading at $40, raced to 100 A few weeks later, it hit $140. The investors' appetite for internet stocks seemed to have no bounds. On July 10, Broadcast.com, a Dallas startup that posted audio and video feeds on its website, went public in an IPO managed by Morgan Stanley. Stanley. Okay. Broadcast.com didn't have any of its own programming, and its site was free. For revenues, it relied on advertising and corporate video conferencing. In 1997, the firm had lost $6.5 million on revenues of $6.9 million. After being issued at $18, the Broadcast.com stock closed at 62 and three quarters. This was a first-day gain of 250%, the biggest IPO pop yet. Only Greenspan had the capacity to restrain it, but his eyes were fixed on the ongoing financial upheaval in Asia. 1998, there was stuff going on. And he skips around a lot in this book, and it gets a little bit confusing, but we'll do our best here. Another quote here from Milton Friedman, a University of Chicago Nobel laureate. He's an economist. He told the New Yorker, I think there's a good deal of comparison between the market in 1929 and the market today. I think both of them are bubbles. Whether the magnitudes are the same, I don't have any idea. If anything, I suspect there is more of a bubble in today's market than there was in 1929. The next meeting of the FOMC was scheduled for late August. If the Fed had raised interest rates at that meeting, stocks would undoubtedly have fallen. It is impossible to know just how severe the sell-off would have been, but the bullish sentiment would have been badly dented. It is conceivable that the internet stock boom would have come to the end then and there. More likely, several interest rate hikes would have been necessary to burst the bubble. Either way, the next two years would have looked very different. As it was... International events prompted Greenspan to hold off from raising interest rates and the parade of internet IPOs continued. So those international events on August 17, Russia devalued their ruble. They basically inflated it to nothing and they did they defaulted on a lot of their debt. That triggered all a lot of widespread chaos overseas in markets and that's the that's the international things that they're talking about there. His actions added to the growing belief that the Fed would always be there to bail out investors if anything went wrong. And this made investors even more willing to take risk. So September 29, the Fed made a rate cut. October fifteenth, the Fed made a second rate cut. In allowing investors to look to him as a potential savior, Greenspan, however inadvertently, ended up further inflating the internet bubble. The two interest rate reductions confirmed to many people on Wall Street that in a crisis, the Fed chairman could be relied upon to take prompt and dramatic action to protect their interest. People ignore risk. Risk no longer mattered. There is, there is the thing called moral hazard. You will change your behavior if you think there's no consequences. James Kramer said that it was time to start buying internet stocks again. Prices might be crazy, he conceded, but they were going to get crazier. If the emails posted on the street.com's website were any guide, most individual investors shared Kramer's view. Scott Worcester, an active internet stock trader, wrote, I agree. Things are bound to get even crazier. After all, I sold my Excite at 39.5 after thinking it hit major resistance at 40 And a few days later it goes through the roof. Yeah, probably now is the time to buy. The market makes suckers out of all of us. I mean he knows it's a bad idea.
1: It's that fear of missing out. We see in the the social media of today F O M O
0: The interest rate cuts in the fall of nineteen ninety eight marked the transition from the boom stage of the speculative bubble to euphoria the peak of a speculative mania is a sight to behold. In the scramble to cash in before it's too late, all prior reasoning, sentiment, and knowledge count for naught. Only the twisted logic of the market matters. Most people knew that internet stocks were overvalued, but they couldn't resist joining the speculative horde. Here's a quote. There is nothing so disturbing to one's well-being and judgment as to see a friend get rich. End quote. Charles Kindleberger, the MIT historian of financial manias, used to tell his pupils. On November 10, stock in KTEL International jumped eight 8.58, or 75% to 20 and a quarter. After surging to over $40 earlier in the year, when it had announced plans to sell music over the internet, KTEL's stock had collapsed during the summer. But investors were now snapping it up again because Microsoft Network had agreed to feature Ktel on its shopping channel. How's that shopping channel over at Microsoft Network these days, Dan? I don't watch it. I don't I don't I don't go there. I don't shop there. On November 17, 1998, the Fed cut interest rates again from 5% to 4.75%. It was the third rate cut in six weeks, the sort of policy shift usually reserved for recessions. And what was going on here is the bond market hadn't recovered from this international crisis going on with the Russian ruble devaluation. And the the, the repercussions of that were causing some stress, and that caused the FOMC to lower rates again.
1: It sounds like they didn't have enough tools in their toolbox, or they didn't make use of other tools that they might have been able to use I'm not a, am not an expert with what tools they have available but maybe interest rates aren't the only thing they should be playing with maybe and
0: and who knows I mean not being in that room you don't Mm -hmm. know what's going on there even the news that Netscape the original internet firm had been forced to give up its independence didn't stop the rally in internet stocks so skipping around a little bit but Netscape didn't stay by itself permanently At the end of November, America Online announced that it was acquiring Netscape for $4.2 billion in stock. The deal marked the final submission in Netscape's losing battle with Microsoft. In August of 1995, at the time of Netscape's IPO, the Netscape Navigator web browser had a market share of about 80%. Now it was trailing the Internet Explorer. They had the market share. They were first in market. They had high market share and... Internet Explorer's success demonstrated that many of the arguments used to rationalize the valuations of companies like Netscape, Yahoo, and Amazon.com were deeply suspect. Microsoft had proved that in the web browser part of the internet economy at least, the barriers to entry were low and first mover advantage was a lot less important than deep pockets and an overall clout in related markets. It was getting difficult to keep track of all the internet IPOs though. There were now so many internet stocks that special stock indices were being set up to track their performance. Dow Jones launched the Dow Jones Internet Composite Index, which included a broad range of internet issues. The new stock indices helped to maintain the illusion that the internet was a regular business sector, just like the transportation sector or the drug sector, with its own internal logic, metrics, and authorities. If there must be madness... John Kenneth Galbraith wrote of, of September 1929, when the ill-fated Shenandoah and Blue Ridge Investment Trust made their debut, something must be said for having, having it on a heroic scale. So if there must be madness, something has to be said for having it on a heroic scale. So he wrote the book we covered in episode three. Yep. By the start of 1999, Galbraith, witty and articulate, still at 90, had his wish fulfilled. The size of that potential market is so huge that you have these pie-in-the-sky type of potentials for a lot of different firms. Undoubtedly, some of these small companies whose stock prices are going through the roof will succeed, and they may very well justify even higher prices. The vast majority are almost sure to fail. That's the way the markets tend to work in this regard. There is something else going on here, though, which is fascinating, which is a fascinating thing to watch. It is, for want of a better term, the lottery principle. What lottery managers have known for centuries is that you can get somebody to pay for a one in a million shot more than the value of that chance. In other words, people pay more for a claim on a very big payoff, and that's where the profits from lotteries have always come from. So there is a lottery premium built into the prices of internet stocks. In early 1999, the stock market was putting a negative value on caution and common sense. In its issue of April 12, 1999, the Industry Standard, this was a publication focused on the internet, pointed out that America Online, which had been added to the S&P 500 at the start of the year, now had a market capitalization of $137 billion. $100,000 invested in the stock 18 months prior would now be worth $1.3 million. 13 times your money in 18 months. On April 26th, the New Yorker published its profile of Mary Meeker, a star analyst at Morgan Stanley, complete with her prediction of a big fall in internet stocks sometime in in the next year the correction started immediately. Now, wait, she was the one a few years back that was just completely fanning the flames of the IPO thing for Morgan Stanley. I mean, she was really a big proponent of these these internet IPOs. And here she is in 1999 being interviewed by the New Yorker magazine saying there's going to be a big fall in internet stocks sometime in the next 12 months. So the correction starts immediately with the Dow Jones Composite Internet Index following more than 50 points or 19%. Over the next two months, most of the big internet stocks fell sharply. Amazon.com dropped 47%. eBay dropped 35%. And America Online dropped 32%. At this stage, however, the mania for internet stocks was still far too advanced to be halted, even by a sizable correction. Most investors regarded the sell-off as an inevitable hiccup. Can you imagine a 47% decline being deemed a a hiccup? Eh, it's down forty-seven percent. No factor. Unlike during previous corrections, the flow of IPOs continued. Business as usual. He talks here about the trading nation. By early nineteen ninety-nine, there were more than sixty day trading firms. What are those? All, so these are firms dedicated to teaching people or providing a facility for people to trade in inside of a trading day. So you're in, you're in, and you're out in the same day. They had 300 offices around the country. According to the SEC, the number of people trading full-time at day trading firms was somewhere between 5,800 and 6,800, with probably a couple of the thousand people they estimate that were operating from home. By the start of 1999, day trading accounted for about 15% of the total trading volume on the NASDAQ. This was an overall figure. For some internet stocks, such as America Online or Yahoo, the percentage was much higher. Given the entry requirements, a lot of these day trading firms had an entry requirement that you had to have an account of 50000 or more. Okay, Day trading was a game for rich people or middle-income people who had mortgaged their futures. Boom. Unfortunately, there was a good number of the latter, drawn in by the prospect of giving up their jobs, their jackets, and ties and making money on their own time. Most day traders were well-educated. I mean, it took a certain level of intelligence and arrogance to persuade yourself that you could trade successfully against Wall Street professionals who'd been doing it their entire working lives. They tended to spend a lot of time in chat rooms like mtrader.com and daytraders.com where they picked up the latest gossip. Like all forms of gambling, day trading was addictive. Dan, I can tell you right now, I see this right now in 2020 happening with people in their 20s on their phones trading stocks on their phones. There's talk of people who say, hey, I've got a $20,000 portfolio that I've developed and I can retire because I can generate $12,000 a year of cash flow from a $20,000 portfolio. That math don't work. It is not sustainable. But we're seeing the exact same psychology with people who weren't even born when most of this stuff was going down. In some cases anyway. Mm -hmm. Or at least they're not old enough to even have a recollection of these events. And you see the
1: echo chamber effect in the chat rooms. They jump They jump into the a social media. They jump groups. into a
0: financial uh, or a Facebook financial group or a Facebook stock trading group or investing group. And there's some people in there that try to give them some level of, of rationality. But to a lot of them, you we, we sound like Barton Biggs at Morgan Stanley with your gray hair and your suit from the 1950s. I mean, it's just that's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah. But this idea that this is something new has never happened before with, you know. I don't know, right now in 2020, it's Tesla and Apple or whatever, electric cars and uh, home delivery because of COVID. All those things, you're seeing valuations go really, really high. The Jenga tower is getting taller and there's not a lot more bricks on on the table, but we know how the story continues. Like most amateur golfers, the vast majority of day traders did poorly. When the Massachusetts authorities investigated one-day trading firm in their state, they found that 67 out of 68 customers had lost money. As more people got involved, tales of the disaster multiplied. A Chicago waiter with no trading experience blew a $200,000 inheritance. A Boston retiree went through $250,000 of his wife's savings in a few hours. A California bank employee quit his job, borrowed $40,000 on credit cards and start to start trading, and promptly lost the lot. Mark Orrin Barton, a 44-year-old Atlanta man, was one of the losers. Barton was typical of the thousands of Americans who had given up their jobs to become day traders. A former chemist, scout leader, And Jehovah's Witness, he lived in Stockbridge, a modest suburb, with his second wife and two children. But he spent many of his days in the posh Buckhead section where a number of day trading firms had offices. Barton began trade trading in 1998 at the offices of All Tech Investments. By April 1999, he had racked up big losses and his account was shut down. In early June, Barton started trading again at the nearby Momentum Securities. He claimed to be worth $750,000 and wrote a check for $87,500 to open the account. Despite the change of venue, Barton's trading losses continued. Although internet stocks were undergoing a correction, he kept buying them, particularly Amazon.com, in the hope of a turnaround. Ignoring the day trader's dictum, he refused to close out losing positions. In just eight weeks, he lost $105,000. That's his original stake, Plus 17.5 that he borrowed on margin. On Tuesday, July 27, Momentum Securities issued Barton with a margin call. Unless he came up with the money he owed, his account would be closed. That night, Barton went back to Stockbridge and battered his wife to death with a hammer, bundling her body into a closet. The next day, Momentum informed Barton that a check he had written for $50,000 had bounced, this time, Barton went home and bludgeoned his nine-year-old daughter and 12-year-old son. After placing their bodies into their beds with their favorite toys beside them, Barton wrote a suicide note in which he said, I don't plan to live very much longer, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction.
1: Oh my God.
0: On Thursday, July 29, Barton put on the baggy shorts that he often wore to trade in and drove to Buckhead. He went first to Momentum Securities and asked for the manager, who fortunately for him was out to lunch. Barton walked into the trading floor, commiserating with a few traders about the market, which was down steeply. It's a bad trading day, and it's about to get worse, he said, pulling out a forty-five automatic and a 9mm pistol. He started firing wildly, killing four people and wounding several others. Then he went across the street to Alltech, where the manager was in his office. After shooting him, Barton walked out to the trading floor and said, I certainly hope this doesn't ruin your trading day, and shot another four people dead before fleeing. A few hours later, police pulled Barton over to gas station and he shot himself in the temple. Barton was undoubtedly a disturbed individual. After the shooting spree, it emerged that he had been the prime suspect in the murder of his first wife and mother-in-law several years earlier but in some ways he wasn't so untypical. In his decision to give up his regular career, his fascination with internet stocks and his belief that buying and selling stocks was a good way to get rich quickly, he was like countless other Americans. Day trading after all was just an extreme form of online trading which had developed into a national pastime. More than 5 million American households now had online trading accounts, and many had more than one. Charles Schwab alone had more than 6 million customer accounts, and it was adding another 100000 every month. A third of all retail stock trades were being done online, and the percentage was increasing. In June, TD Waterhouse, the second biggest online brokerage, was almost, with almost 2 million accounts, went public in the biggest internet IPO yet, raising more than $1 billion. Cassidy talks here about different types of online traders that existed. The first group, which numbered to perhaps 200,000, comprised the most active traders who bought and sold stocks every day or almost every day. Many had turned investing into a first or second job. Unlike the day traders, they tended to hold on to stocks for days and weeks, sometimes even months. These people frequented the street.com, ragingbull.com, and other financial websites Many of them used no-frills online brokers such as Daytech, which charged as little as $10 a trade. They accounted for up to three-quarters of all online trades and were often responsible for the sudden spikes in Internet stocks. Some Internet stocks became so volatile that firms like Schwab refused to deal in them. Dan, there's a red flag right there. If you're trying to trade a stock and somebody like Schwab says no... Rather than firing Schwab and going to where you can find that stock, maybe you need to take a a breath.
1: Yeah, self-evaluation there.
0: The second group of online traders was made up of people who bought and sold stocks on a regular basis but didn't devote their lives to the internet. This group included the vast majority of individual investors. Many newcomers reported themselves overwhelmed by all the financial information available online, and 37% of them admitted that they based their investment decisions on instinct. I don't know what you call that. I mean, to be fair, I don't want to... You can be cold and just call it sheer laziness, but I know human beings are built... It's built in. We're hardwired to take a simple approach to making our decisions, and it's easier to copy somebody else than to actually do your homework. Want the easy button. In 1992, there were 7,200 investment clubs listed with the National Association of Investors Corp., a nonprofit organization based in Madison Heights, Michigan. At the start of 1999, there were more than 37,000. By then, the United States contained more investment clubs than movie houses. As long as the stock market kept going up, few people questioned the underlying premise of all this activity that buying and selling stocks on a regular basis was a profitable pursuit. Brad Barber and Terrence Odeon, two economists from the University of California at Davis, did bother to look at the evidence, examining the trading records of a large discount brokerage between 1991 and 1996. During that period, the firm's 12,000 most active investors earned an annual return of 10%, compared to 15% for all customers and 17% for the market overall. The main reasons why active traders did badly were commission costs and poor market timing. Quote, Our central message is that trading is hazardous to your health. End quote. Barbara Odean concluded. Their study confirmed what many others had shown before. For most people, the best way to invest is to buy a diverse portfolio of stocks or a mutual fund then forget about it for a decade or two. That's 10 to 20 years. A decade or two. What's long-term investing? A decade or two. The worst way is to trade every day. In the summer of 1998, three economists published an article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives entitled Learning from the Behavior of Others, Conformity, Fads, and Informational Cascades. They tried to explain why very different people often end up doing the same thing, such as wearing the same brand of shoes, watching the same television shows, or putting their money in internet stocks. The key to such fads, the economists argued, is social learning. Keeping up with the Joneses. Learning from the actions of others. When faced with a choice of actions, such as deciding whether to buy Yahoo or eBay at a price equal to several hundred times its revenues... That's revenues, not profits, by the way. Um, A person can react in one of two ways. The first option is to examine all of the alternatives, weigh up their costs and benefits, and make an independent judgment. Quote, however, this can be costly and time-consuming. So a plausible alternative is to rely on the information of others. End quote, the article explained. Quote, such influence may take the form of direct communication and discussion with or observation of others, end quote. Imitating the actions of others is a trait deeply ingrained in many animals, not just humans. The economists speculated that it might be an evolutionary adaptation that has promoted survival by, quote, allowing individuals to take advantage of hard-won information of others, end quote. Whatever the cause, once a few people decide to rely on others rather than thinking for themselves, the behavior can quickly spread. If this happens, the result may be an information cascade in which ultimately nobody acts on his or her own judgment. Public information stops accumulating, the economist wrote. Quote, an early preponderance toward adoption or rejection causes subsequent individuals to ignore their private signals, which thus never enter the public pool of knowledge. The result, with virtual certainty, all but the first few individuals end up doing the same thing, ignoring their private signals. So many times I've had sad conversations with people where they've been, uh, they've experienced a blow up in a bad investment or a bad decision that they made financially. And almost every single one of them would say something like, I knew it. I shouldn't have done it. It was against my best interest. I did it anyway. I can't believe I did that. I should have listened to my gut. I should have followed my system. Yeah. We hear that over and over again on all the sad stories that occur when we meet people. You need to listen to your gut.
1: Impatience. Yeah. One of our guidelines is ask who, not how. And it makes me think about if, if someone is engaged in investing and they don't have the time or the math skills to understand the numbers aspect of it, but they want to participate. And they're trying to follow their own gut, or as it was said earlier, they make instinctive decisions based on the instinct. Well, where is that coming from? And as they try to figure things out, trying to ask who, who will help give them the right instinct who will help give them the right guidance. Be careful who the who is. Yeah. The who shouldn't be fifteen thousand people just like you. And it shouldn't necessarily be your neighbor if they're a mechanic and have no knowledge of the stock market. We do hear a lot
0: sometimes. We're like, Oh yeah, I have this friend, I have this brother in law, I have a cousin, I have an uncle, I have a grand nephew, I have a former boss who knows about all this stuff. The translation is they know more than me. Right. <laughs>
1: We've had people,
0: you know, just, just just knowing, just knowing, I'm sorry, just, just knowing a little bit more than you is doesn't really qualify anyone as an expert. And it certainly doesn't impart them with any wisdom. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, I was going to mention that we've had client meetings where we make recommendations. Clients would go back and talk to their neighbors and then come back to us and say, hey, I'm not moving forward or my neighbor is doing it this way and he's got a friend. And that, yes. Yeah.
0: And that, that often happens when you're recommending something that's truly undervalued. And when something's truly undervalued and on sale, guess what its trailing return looks like? No. Probably not that great. It's real easy to get somebody to buy an investment that has a trailing return that's 20% a year for the one year, three year, five year, 10 year. That looks great. But if the Jenga tower is made up of single blocks per level and the blocks are vertically mounted so that it, there's truly the tallest tower you've ever seen, it's going to have a great return and it may just be a total house of cards. But you go and recommend something that's a same number of blocks, but it's a cube. It's on sale. It's stable. It's it's a safer investment for the future. A lot of times you'll go back to those amateurs and they'll look at the returns and they'll go, yeah, the returns haven't, it's not doing too well. Yeah. and. The rubber bands may be stretched and it's on sale. People need to pay attention to that. Back to the book. In such an environment, as sociologist Gustave Le Bon wrote in his classic book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, an individual is, quote, a grain of sand amidst other grains of sand, which the wind stirs up at will, end quote. Once a crowd has formed, it has a natural tendency to go to extremes because the individuals in the crowd who might possess a personality sufficiently strong to resist the suggestions are too few in number to struggle against the current. Eventually, even the independent-minded give up the fight. The peer pressure strong. I mean, nobody wants to be that, that courageous rebel. Everybody wants to feel like they're a rebel, but they're usually rebellious with a group. There's this uh, he mentions this documentary at the beginning of startup.com an entertaining documentary that tracks the rise and fall of govworks he he there I just copied that line from the book in, in my notes here it's available for free on YouTube right now it's called startup.com it's an I thought I thought it was a parody initially as I'm reading about this and I find out they actually had a documentary crew tracking this this group of people during the startup craze of the internet. And they had a company that I think it was like an incredibly short time, like less than a few months between idea and seeking an IPO. And eventually, and they got their IPO and then eventually it completely fizzled and failed. It's a a fascinating documentary on what people were thinking and what it was actually like on the ground. So if somebody wanted to look at that, um, that's just another resource to go through. If you want to get a sense of what this was actually like behind the scenes, uh, it's a really interesting peek behind the curtain. But in 1996, there were 458 venture capital firms in the United States with $52 billion under management. A venture capital firm is a company that helps businesses. They're kind of an in-between um, investor in small businesses before they go public. They'll invest in privately held companies and try to do what they can to expand that company and and help that company grow in an effort that they can flip that and sell that investment in a couple of years for a huge profit. So they're investors that invest in these privately held companies, venture capital firms. So in 1996, there were 458 of them, 50 billion dollars under management. By 1999, three years later, there were 779 firms with 164 billion to spend. It's a lot of money chasing a lot chasing these businesses. Quote, you could walk into offices in New York and people would immediately offer money to you if they thought you looked smart. We didn't have any data on the market. We didn't have a product demo. We didn't have anything. We had a business plan. But that was it. Most people no longer thought of capitalism as an oppressive system crying out for critique or a comic Farrago Farago Farago Farago. Right for satire rather they looked upon it as something akin to a las vegas slot machine with the barrels stuck on jackpot until the management got wise to it and did some repairs they continue feeding quarters into the slot i just briefly touched on this but this there's this whole chapter on these these kids that were in college these college students that thought all i got to do is come up with an idea and take it public and i'm done set for life and that happened for a lot of people They went public, they got all their money, and they were set for life. And if they were smart, they kept their money. Warning signs. Rising stock prices boosted consumption and investment, which boosted economic growth, which in turn underpinned further rises in stock prices. The reflexive process was most powerful in the technology sector, which generated perhaps a third of all the growth in the economy from 1995 to 1999. Technology component manufacturers like Cisco Systems, Lucent Technologies, and Nortel Networks expanded at unprecedented rates. Their biggest customers were upstart telecommunications companies such as Quest Williams Communications and 360 Networks that owed their existence to the buoyant financial markets. Some of these firms were building national networks to challenge long-distance carriers like AT&T and Sprint. We'll come back to AT&T in a bit. Others were building local networks to compete against the baby bells. But they all depended on the financial markets to raise the vast sums of money needed to finance their expansion. In attempting to justify the prices, investors were paying for Cisco, Nortel, and other technology favorites. Wall Street analysts looked at their current growth rates and extrapolated them into the indefinite future. This valuation method conveniently ignored the fact that the high growth rates were themselves a product of the stock market's rise. Should this market falter, they would almost certainly disappear. A house of cards. A house of cards. Was forming. After Labor Day, 1999, as traders returned to their desks, stocks of all kinds were trading at levels never before seen relative to earnings and dividends. The P.E. ratio on the S&P 500 index was 33 compared to a previous high of 22 in August of 1987, two months before Black Monday. Ray Fair, a Yale economist, tried to answer a question that was on many minds. Did current stock prices make any sense? In order for the answer to be yes, Fair calculated corporate earnings would have to grow At 14.5% for 10 years. And the ratio of after-tax profits to GDP would have to double from 6% to 12%. This wasn't impossible, but it would involve an unprecedented redistribution of income from workers to corporations. Much more likely, with unemployment at its lowest level in 30 years, was a profit squeeze as workers demanded higher wages these people were assuming erroneously that employees didn't matter that workers didn't count and that this technology would just turn the whole world magically into a, a jetsons universe and that there wouldn't be any kind of like shift and change and disruption of of the old, of the other economy uh, they just thought it would happen magically in a straight line very very naive and the sad thing is, it was just completely pervasive across everybody. It's amazing how blinding that, that crowd mentality can be, that peer pressure and that greed can be. People were just blinded. Since Alan Greenspan's irrational exuberant speech in December 1996, margin debt had almost doubled. As a percentage of GDP, it was now at its highest level in more than 60 years. Other types of borrowing, including bank loans, credit card loans, and home equity loans, were also rising fast. Total household debt stood at 102% of personal disposable income compared to 85% in 1992. There were increasing signs that all this extra debt was having an effect. Amid the ongoing boom, more people than ever were defaulting on their debts. Personal bankruptcies were running at record levels. These indicators strongly suggested that the American economy was in a credit-driven speculative bubble of the sort Japan went through in the 1980s, but investors preferred to believe the upbeat explanations provided. This, too, was typical of the late stages of speculative mania. The September issue of Wired contained a number of articles on the coming age of ultra-prosperity. This is classic. Kevin Kelly, the magazine's executive editor, and the author of The New Rules for the New Economy, sketched in America in 2020, ready for this, where the average household income was $150,000, middle-class families had their own personal chefs, and the Dow was was north of $50,000 and heading for $100,000. Such a scenario, quote, looks more plausible all the time, Kelly wrote. Quote, how many times in the history of mankind have we wired the planet to create a single marketplace? How often have entirely new channels of commerce been created by digital technology when this money itself has transformed into thousands of instruments of investment? If you're listening to this um, after the year 2020, we're in 2020 recording now, but uh, I can assure you that the Dow Jones is nowhere near 50,000, not heading for 100,000 anytime soon. And the average American household income right now is in, is about 80. That's the average. The median is actually in that low 60,000 range. The median American income is in the low 60s. And the average is in like 83,000 recently. So uh, Mr. Kelly was a bit off in his, in his uh, optimism. A few more quotes of the time. I don't think internet valuations are crazy. I think they reflect a fundamental embrace of huge opportunities. Harry Dent Jr., the baby boomer theorist, who back in 1992 had predicted the Dow would reach 8,500 sometime between 2006 and 2010, a forecast that turned out to be too conservative. I'll take a little bit of a issue with that because uh, it may have been too conservative by 2010 in 2006, but in between it did hit something below 7,000. Nonetheless, back to the book. Dent now had his own advisory firm, Dent had just published a paperback version of his latest book, The Roaring 2000s Investor, in which he predicted the Dow would reach 41000 in 2009. Mr. Dent was a little bit off because on March 6, 2009, the Dow was at $6,469, 17th of what his prediction was. On Friday, December 29, 1999, Muhammad Ali rang the opening bell of the New York Stock Exchange. When the closing bell rang a few hours later on a session shortened for the holiday, the Dow was at an all-time high of 11,497. For the year, it was up 25%. The NASDAQ, which only the previous day had closed above 4,000 for the first time, was also in record territory at 4,069. Since the start of 1999, it had risen by 85.6% the best performance ever by a major American stock index, surpassing the Dow's 81% surge in 1915. Some narrower indexes had performed even better. The Dow Jones Internet Composite Index had climbed 167% on the year. I can tell you the pressure back then from investors to keep up with that made 1999 a bit of a challenge i had a, a meeting in the summer of 1999 with an employee of nortel networks during this exact mania and he sat down he and his wife came in they sat down with with us at our offices and he had at the time on paper 1.2 million dollars if memory serves of nortel network stock that he owned on their balance sheet it was by far it was the it was all, it was like their entire net worth it was in Nortel stock. And this is summer of 1999. And I, I'm, you're, you following best practice. You're saying, listen, that's a lot of eggs in one basket. He, he didn't have it in a brokerage account where he could put any protection, like a put option or a hedge he, 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 for, for whatever reason. He, he said, I'm worth over a million dollars. You're 27 years old. Who are you to tell me I'm a millionaire now? What makes you qualified to give me advice? And, you know, I'm 27, and I said, listen, best practices are you shouldn't have all your eggs in one basket. That's dangerous. Please diversify. And, you know, what? he He didn't do that. He went and got a second mortgage on his house as much as they could possibly get and put more money into Nortel stock. That didn't end well for him, I imagine. It ended very, very badly. So now we're getting into the year 2000. On the morning of Monday, January 10, Steve Case, the chairman of America Online, walked into a stage at the Equitable Center in Midtown Manhattan and announced that America Online was buying Time Warner for $165 billion. The real significance of the merger between America Online and Time Warner was the confirmation that it offered that the old media and the new media were converging, a convergence that had devastating implications for Internet stocks. In joining with Time Warner, Case exploited the stock market bubble to convert his company from an internet service provider with uncertain prospects into a global media colossus that could survive and prosper in any environment. At least one media mogul looked on in admiration. Quote, it was a brilliant piece of financial engineering. End quote. Rupert Murdoch commented. Quote, he jumped in and bought something with six billion dollars in cash flow. End quote. The day after the merger announcement, America Online stock fell by almost 10 percent to 64.50. Investors were starting to focus on the fact that it was no longer solely an internet company with internet growth rates. After the merger, it would be a new media, old media hybrid, growing at only 20 percent or 25 percent a year instead of 50 percent. By the end of January, America Online was trading below $60, down more than a third from its December speak. Case had torpedoed his company's stock, but he had secured its long-term future. That was a brilliant move, Mr. Case.
1: He, the internet companies, earlier on, they had a new paradigm for valuing what these internet companies were. And internet companies no longer followed the established norms and established rules for profitability net income and here mr case took that company that was valued at that quote new paradigm way of thinking about things and bought into a company a well-established one and it freaked people out people didn't know how to deal with it
0: it's it's like he had it's like for a brief period of time his bank was going to accept monopoly money, <laughs> and he realized his company was worth, uh, on paper, his company was worth all this in stock, and they used that stock as currency, and bought and, and created a merger where AOL controlled fifty-five percent of the new entity. I mean, it was a very, very wise move, even though in the short run it was just, it was probably very painful for him. So you're talking about these valuations. He talks about one of the greatest of all overvalued companies. No firm guarded its status as an internet company more zealously than Yahoo. So you got AOL saying, hey, we're going to hybrid. We're going to mix with these other media companies. And Yahoo says, nope, we're internet only. Digging in on the internet thing. For the year as a whole, Yahoo earned $61 million in revenues on revenues that had jumped 140% to $588 million. So they had $588 million in sales. They earned $61 million. So they made a profit. More than 3,000 companies were now advertising on Yahoo. In anticipation of the earnings release, Yahoo's stock broke through $500, a new all-time high, valuing the firm at... Now, mind you, this is $2,000. 131600000000 billion. There was a lot of competition, but this may well have been the most exaggerated valuation ever placed on an American company. Yahoo was now worth more than Walt Disney and News Corporation combined. Its stock market valuation was 224 times its 1999 revenues. That's sales. And 2,154 times its 1999 earnings it had a P.E. ratio of 2,154. For historical perspective, historically the stock market P.E. ratio has, has always been somewhere between 15 and 20 on average. 2,154. Now I can tell you there's people I could take right now back in a time machine to 2,000 that are in Facebook right now on trading stocks, looking at stocks like Tesla, and they might go back at Yahoo and that time frame and said, hey, it's going to the moon. I think I should buy more right now. 2,154 times its earnings. That's a Jenga tower where the Jenga blocks are vertically stacked. On their ends, one block per level, and somebody starts shaving pieces of the blocks to, to balance them on the top again to make it even higher. It's insanity. So it was at $500. By the end of January, Yahoo's stock had already fallen back below 325 500 to 325 that was just the month of January. So also in 2000, we we're getting back to the Greenspan story with the Fed. Greenspan's policies had played a central role in the stock market boom. At the end of 2000, or at the start of 2000, short term interest rates stood at 5.5%, almost exactly where they had been in the summer of 1995 when Netscape went public. So rates hadn't changed. Margin debt reached $243 billion in January 2000. At that level, it amounted to 1.57% of the stock market's value, which equaled the previous peak in the fall of 1987. Folks, study your history here. When things start to line up the way they did at previous peaks, you need to at least start paying attention a little bit. Greenspan was increasingly worried about what was happening in the stock market. The real economy and the financial economy were now intertwined, a classic symptom of a late-stage speculative bubble. In 1998, the economy expanded by 4.8%, about twice its long-term growth rate. In 1999, the rate of expansion rose to 5%, well above the rate that even most proponents of the new economy thesis believed to be sustainable. Early in 2000, there was no sign of growth slowing. So this is economic growth, the actual economy, not the stock market values. On January 13, 2000, Greenspan outlined his latest thinking about the economy to the Economic Club of New York. Greenspan had finally come up with an economic rationale for interfering with the stock market. I'm stepping away here. So Dan, what was going on is for years, he had had some concerns about the market and he, he talked about that, but he, he never could find a way to justify it to the public or to the rest of the, from the FOMC board to get them to interfere with the stock market. He's like some Because again, the Fed's mandate is control inflation and keep employment good. Inflation, Employment. Doesn't say anything in their mandate about the stock market, but he's still concerned. So he finally found a rationale. To reduce the risk of inflation, the wealth effect would have to be attenuated. So the wealth effect is, you, when you feel richer, you're going to spend more money. So on paper, you've made a lot of money in the stock market. The idea is the wealth effect is, I feel more wealthy, therefore I'm going to go spend more elsewhere because I'm, right, I'm okay over here on the stock market side of things, so I'm going to drain my savings account, or I'm going to borrow against my house and spend the money, that kind of thing. And when that happens, the concern is that the stock market winds up really, really fast. The wealth effect causes demand for products and services to go up, but products and services can't ramp up production enough to meet that demand. And when you have more demand, And less supply, you're going to have an inflation shock. That prices will go up. Prices will go up, right? So it's a little bit long-winded explanation of what's going on here, but that's what the thinking was. This quote does not mean that prices of assets cannot keep rising; only that they rise no more than income. End quote. This was a big statement with personal income growing at about 6% a year this implied that stock prices could grow by 6% too in the current environment such a return was piddling the nasdaq had just returned almost 90% most investors weren't expecting to repeat performance in 2000 but they sure weren't looking for they were looking for a lot more than 6% The day after Greenspan's speech, the Dow hit an intraday high of 11,908.50 and closed at 11,723. Nobody knew it at the time, but the index had peaked, at least for this economic cycle. On the morning of February 2, Greenspan and the rest of the FOMC gathered around a 25 foot long table in the Fed's grand ballroom. During World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill commandeered this room to plan the Allied campaign to liberate Europe. Greenspan and his colleagues didn't have Nazi Germany to worry about, but they were increasingly concerned about the economic expansion, which, at 107 months old, was now the longest ever. They had come close to raising rates in December, but had held back because of fears about Y2K computer problems. When that change of dates passed off uneventfully, there was no need for further restraint. The majority thought that a quarter point hike would do the job, at least for now. The committee agreed to raise rates by a quarter point and coupled the move with a public warning that more hikes might well lie ahead. The speculative bubble had entered its terminal phase. There was no immediate panic. A week after the Fed's move, the index had risen by almost 10%. The Dow, meanwhile, was stuck in a correction that began in January. On February 11, it closed at below 10500 Quote, When Alan Greenspan speaks, the old economy trembles, Floyd Norris, a financial columnist for the New York Times noted. But now the new the new one thinks it is impervious to higher interest rates and shrugs off warnings from the Federal Reserve chairman. The market had entered what Hyman Minsky, an economist who specialized in financial manias, termed the stage of revulsion. This takes place at the very peak of a bubble. Pay attention here. This takes place at the very peak of a bubble. Investors realize the game is almost up, and they become more discriminating. Some discreetly cash in their gains. The market has some good days and it may even rise further, but it also becomes increasingly volatile amid the general recognition that the easy money has already been made. They still didn't know this, though. Nobody was paying attention. Some people were, but the majority weren't. For the moment, technology investors continued to ignore the Fed. A report that said America Online seems undervalued by almost any measure happened. (laughs) the rotation from stocks that would be vulnerable in a slowdown old economy companies to those that would supposedly prosper indefinitely new economy companies continue to pace this idea that hey all you old fogies are dead this is the new thing out with the old in with the new we're all gonna go to utopia together in six months and retire at the age of 27 On February 25th, the Dow closed below 10,000 for the first time in almost 12 months. In the stock market, the rush to embrace technology continued. Among companies in the NASDAQ 100 index, the average PE ratio was now well over 100. Speaking to an investment conference in Miami, James Kramer told the crowd to forget everything they thought they knew about the stock market. Forget profits, forget value, and forget long-term investing. The only stocks worth holding, Kramer claimed, were technology companies. Winners win, he bellowed. In parentheses, he says here, In his saner moments, even Kramer was having some doubts about the market. Writing on the street.com, he advised investors to cash in some of their profits. End parentheses. Around this time, Kramer was really doing two things. He'd been renowned as a really wonderful investor through from late eighties into the nineties and had an awful lot of money under management with his hedge fund. He did extremely well, but at the same time he had become a media personality. And as we talked about before, media personalities, attention matters. So you're on stage at a conference in Miami. If that stage, if that conference is about, uh, you know, the bull market, what do you say from stage? Go, go, go Bye, 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 right? To the moon, baby. But privately, he's having his own doubts. So again, if you're going to ask who, not how, you got to ask yourself, consider the source. Consider the source. Consider their incentives.
1: And as an amateur investor, you're hearing him on the stage say one thing. And in writing in the street.com, he's saying something different. Amateur investors... May not know to look at that publication and they may be looking for the headline, and the headline is him ranting on stage. There is benefit to reading
0: more, there is benefit to reading from more than one source, there is benefit to understanding more than just the headline. Back to the book March 7, the NASDAQ broke through 5,000 for the first time, but then dropped back. On Thursday, March 9, 2000, the index jumped 150 points. And this time, it held on to the gain. When the market closed, the NASDAQ stood at 5,046. Moving from 3,000 to 5,000 had had taken just four months. That's a 67% gain in four months. Internet stocks, despite the setbacks some of them had encountered... We're also at an all-time high. On Thursday, March 9, the Dow Jones Internet Composite Index closed above 500 for the first time at 509.84. In the past 12 months, the index had risen by about 130%. Outside of the technology sector, much of the market was already in a bear market. During the past year, more than 80% of the stocks in the S&P 500 index had fallen by 20% or more. The market was becoming much more volatile. This is a big deal because people watch just the index and they forget about the components of the index. And that index can get concentrated in just a few things that are doing well. And you got to pay attention to the others. That's just a telltale sign you can look for and say, hey... In this instance, 80% of the 400 out of those 500 stocks were already down 20%. And yet, everything looked great on the surface. The index probably was actually up at this point in time. But 400 out of the 500 stocks were actually down 20% or more. And the index still had had a banner year. Why? Because those other 100 stocks carried... Biggest ones. They were carrying all the others. And you know what? We're seeing a little bit of that right now in 2020. Not that those stocks are all down 20% because I did look. They're not. But you're seeing five stocks pretty much being responsible for most of the return. The market was becoming much more volatile. Between 1998 and 1995, the NASDAQ moved up or down by more than 3% in a day, just 10 times. Since the start of 2000, there had already been 12 such days, six up and nine down. Even some longtime bulls were getting worried. On March 10, 2000, when the NASDAQ closed above 5,000, Jeremy Siegel, the Wharton economist, who had previously argued that buying stocks was a good strategy regardless of their price, told CNN, quote, a big decline is very possible, end quote.
1: Jeremy Siegel, he's a long-term, he says stock is the thing to do. If you have a long-term perspective and you have long-term goals, stocks are the best way to get there.
0: And, and the key there is defining that long-term. It's a couple decades minimal. And in his mind, I mean, a lot of people are investing for 30 years or more. And over a 30-year period, stocks typically have done better than almost every other category of investing over 30-year periods. But most people don't wait 30 years. And he's now getting worried. And he was getting worried. The NASDAQ finished the week at 4,798, down about 5%, and the Dow Jones Internet Composite Index closed down at 4.66, down about 8% for the week. Barron's published a long article about internet stocks under the headline, Burning Up, written by reporter Jack Willoughby. The piece asked, when will the internet bubble burst? His conclusion? Within about 12 months, at least 50 internet firms would have no money left, and some of them would run out of cash a lot sooner than that. The Barron's piece was the most damaging piece of journalism the internet boom had produced. But even while the Barron's article made investors think about an issue they had been studiously avoiding, it didn't lead to an immediate slump. After falling for a day, most internet stocks stabilized. On Tuesday, March 21, the FOMC met again. They voted unanimously to increase the Fed funds rate by another quarter point to 6%. On Tuesday, March 28th, Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs advised investors to lighten up on stocks, particularly technology stocks. Cohen, while claiming she remained optimistic for the long term, said technology was, quote, no longer undervalued, end quote and reduced the share of stocks in her model portfolio from 70% all the way down to 65%. The move stunned Wall Street. It was as if Madonna had advised girls to dress more conservatively. 70 to 65 is not that big of a move, but it's just telling of what how how precarious the Jenga tower was back then because even a little move downward, and, for, and and her comments freak people out. Mark Mobius, a well-known stock market strategist at the Templeton Mutual Funds Group, added to the selling by suggesting that the worldwide mania for internet stocks was coming to an end. Quote, if you look closely, it's beginning. Look at the number of internet stocks that have come off their highs. Look at the number of internet stocks that are below their initial offering price. End quote.
1: Every little bit of... Not exciting news. It yeah. causes it, that Jenka Tower to wobble a little it's bit. It's wobbling.
0: Now, there wasn't any particular bad economic news to justify the widespread sense of dread. The Fed's intention to raise rates had been known for months. But that was one of the things that alarmed old-timers like Biggs and Robertson. Stock market crashes often happen in a news vacuum. Who's Biggs and Robertson again? Uh, they were the, 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 the old gray-haired guys at... Five years prior, we were like, hey, this is getting a little out of hand. And everybody kind of brushed them off to the side. All oh, day were the Morgan Stanley guys kept in the basement. Correct. Okay. There was no particularly bad news in October 1929 and October 1987 either. But both episodes were preceded by periods of increased volatility. Volatility is the stock market equivalent of a nervous rash. It indicates that investors are agitated and unsure of what's going to happen next. In such circumstances, any hint of bad news tends to get exaggerated and stocks can move sharply for no apparent reason. Dan, we saw this earlier this year. The the volatility index hit a record this year, earlier with, with COVID getting announced and the oil shock that happened globally. We saw the, the volatility index that normally operates somewhere below 20. It hit 83. Huge amounts of volatility. And we were seeing insane movements up and down during late February and mid-March of this year. That's exactly what was going on. People didn't have any clarity, had no information about what was going on, and it just stayed high for a very, very long time. April 4, things got worse. This is April 4, 2000. After the previous day's drop, many investors were facing margin calls they couldn't meet. When they failed to put up the money, the brokerage houses sold some of their stocks to raise cash. This was the traditional recipe for a stock market crash. Oh, you can't cover your margin call, well now you got to sell your stock. When you sell the stock, what happens to the stock price? It goes down. The situation was serious enough for the White House to have its top economic official brief reporters. "Quote, we believe that the fundamentals of our economy will still look very, very strong." End quotes. That's Gene Sperling, the chairman of the National Economic Council, said. It wasn't
1: the most original statement. Wow, it's just ghosting what we read in 1929 about the crash. It does, and it it gets better.
0: In historical terms, technology stocks, particularly internet stocks, were as overvalued as ever. They had risen to their current heights because investors had been willing to ignore old measures of valuation, preferring to focus on more general justifications of higher stock prices, such as the aging of baby boomers and the revolutionary impact of the internet. These arguments were so vague that they could be used to justify practically any level of stock prices. While the market was rising, this vagueness was a great advantage because it meant there was no limit on the upside. But should stock prices start to fall and keep falling, rather than rebounding as in the week just gone, there would be no logical limit on the downside either, a fact investors were about to discover. Don't trouble me with the facts. This is an exciting investment opportunity. The same self-reinforcing process that had propelled stock prices into the stratosphere was now operating in reverse, sending stocks hurtling back to earth. The herd mentality was as strong as ever, but investors were now copying each other, selling. The technology that had made it so easy to buy stocks made it just as easy to sell them. All it took was a simple phone call or a few clicks of a mouse. As people shifted their savings out of technology funds and aggressive growth funds, mutual fund managers were then forced to sell stocks that were already slumping, causing them to fall even farther. The deep falls in many stocks prompted more margin calls, some of which couldn't be met, which in turn prompted further selling by the brokerage houses in order to raise cash. The falling market was feeding on itself, just as the rising market had fed on itself. On the morning of Friday, April 14th, 2000, investors tuned into CNBC and CNN FN with trepidation, especially with a historical bent. 88 years before to the day the Titanic had sunk. Now, new inflation figures showed prices rising faster than at any point in the last five years. This development combined with another strong report on retail sales, meant that further interest rate hikes were virtually inevitable. This is what Greenspan was worried about. And here it is showing up. Quote, this is Larry Summers, the Treasury Secretary, issued a statement on April 14th. We are watching the developments in the markets as we always do, but our focus continues to be on what is most important the fundamentals of the American economy and their contribution to our economic expansion. And I'm confident that the economy will continue to grow over the next while, with fluctuations from quarter to quarter as always, but our fundamentals are sound, end quote. Summers' words had a familiar ring to them. On October 25, 1929, the, black, the day after Black Thursday, President Herbert, Herbert Hoover said, quote, The fundamental business of the country, that is, the production and distribution of commodities, is on a very sound and prosperous basis, end quote. Same words, almost, coming at the same time from our government. It's a playbook they run all the time. When things are panicky, and the first thing they'll try to do is try to say soothing words to try to calm people down. But in this case, back to the book, the bullish psychology upon everything upon which everything depended, had been shattered. The collapse of the NASDAQ was a turning point in American history. For the past five years, the stock market, particularly the NASDAQ, had been the symbol of American technological leadership and economic power. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union and a victory in the Gulf War, the United States really discovered a feeling of youth and vigor. The collapse of the NASDAQ was a turning point in American history. For the past five years, the stock market, particularly the NASDAQ, had been a symbol of American technological leadership and power. It was following the collapse of the Soviet Union and victory in the Gulf War that the United States really rediscovered a feeling of youth and vigor. Old restrictions seemed to slip away, and the country stepped into a future like an animal shedding its winter coat. The rise of Silicon Valley and the Internet was something fresh, something untarnished by financial scandal or memories of Vietnam. It gave new life to the most potent American myth of all, that the future is boundless. Now this myth had been exposed. Suddenly, the country faced a future with limits. Economic limits, political limits, and cultural limits. It wasn't until the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, that Americans would finally acknowledge that the 1990s were truly over and that a darker, more certain future had dawned. A collapse in asset prices can affect the economy in three main ways. It can reduce consumer spending by making people poorer. It can damage the banking system, especially if the banks have lent a lot of money against assets whose value has collapsed. And it can hit investment spending because firms find it more difficult to raise money. The importance of each channel varies depending on the specific circumstances, but the overall impact is usually major. In all walks of life, there were a few people who had placed their life savings in technology and internet stocks. For the past few years, those intrepid souls had been the envy of their colleagues and friends, but now they didn't seem too clever. Most investors had maintained a diverse portfolio, and their losses in technology were cushioned by the resilience of the broader market. In August 2000, the National Association of Purchasing Management's Monthly Index of Manufacturing Activity, an economic indicator that is closely watched in Wall Street, dipped significantly. On Tuesday, January 2, 2001, they announced that its index of manufacturing activity had fallen to its lowest level since the last recession ending in 1991. North Point Communications, which had built a nationwide network of high-speed internet connections, was a typical example. When the market was at its peak, North Point had been valued at $5.6 billion. Now, here's the opposite of what Steve Case did. In March... AT&T bought the company for $135 million. Ouch. That's that's like a 97% drop. 97.5% drop in value. And the stable old economy company, AT&T, that was all boring, swooped in and bought that infrastructure for pennies. On Friday, September 7, the labor department announced that 100,000 jobs had been lost in August and unemployment had risen from 4.5% to 4.9%, the biggest one-month jump in 6 years. Such a sharp rise in joblessness strongly suggested that the economy was now shrinking. Although confirmation, so now we're into 2001. Although confirmation would not come until later in the year when the third quarter gross domestic product figures were released. The historical economic expansion that had given rise to the greatest speculative bubble the country had ever seen was over. The stock market fell sharply, with the Dow shedding 234 points, or 2.4%, to close at 9,605. The Nasdaq, already in the doldrums for a year and a half, fell another 17.94 points to 1687.70. Just again, for reference, it had peaked over 5,000, so it was down Two-thirds, 65% drop off the peak. Shortly after the unemployment figures were released, President Bush summoned reporters to the Rose Garden and said he wanted the American people to know, quote, We're deeply concerned about the unemployment rates, and we intend to do something about it, end quote. Four days later, any lingering hopes of an economic recovery were extinguished when terrorists attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. He's writing this in 2002. And he acknowledged, he said, the, the internet remains a technological wonder. Most internet startups failed because they were based on the mistaken premise, though, that the internet represented a revolutionary new business model, which it didn't. It is a tool which companies can use to build their businesses if they can combine it with the distinctive products and avoid ruinous price wars, but nothing more than that barriers to entry remain low and being first mover is no guarantee of success we saw that with netscape yes and it may be no different today first mover is not always an advantage there's going to be competitors that show up once they figure out you know where your where all your make all your mistakes and weak parts are there are several reasons why the new economy argument turned out to be flawed one of the most basic was that it exaggerated the role that information technology plays in the economy. Despite the rapid growth of the internet, firms still spend more money on old-fashioned capital equipment, such as drills and welding machines, than they do on computers, telephones, and other information gadgets. Again, this is 2002. We're in 2020. It's, it's different than that a little bit now. But... A fundamental lesson of the speculative bubble is that behavior that seems rational at the individual level can lead to collective insanity. Trapped in the logic of herd behavior, Wall Street will inevitably keep inflating the bubble until it bursts. It is up to journalists and government officials to try to maintain sanity. Ha, but in, thats They create insanity. But in this case, neither proved up to this task. Despite some honorable exceptions, The overall standard of reporting on the internet stock phenomenon was dismal.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure where uh, the author comes off even making that kind of a statement. I
0: think it's because it was 2002. Maybe it was
1: different back then. Um,
0: It's definitely nowadays, it's, it's in the journalist's interest to create and even encourage insanity and drama. Because, again, that's where the ratings come from. They want your eyeballs. It's a business just watch just just don't let them change the channel they got to watch the commercials that's how they make their money period the federal reserve which was created expressly to prevent speculative excesses also failed in its duty if anybody had the legal moral and intellectual authority to prick the bubble it was alan greenspan but he refused to exercise this power until it was too late the fed chairman believed that the new economy was a reality and therefore, higher stock prices were justified. Greenspan knew this was happening and did little to stop it. Silicon Valley, Wall Street, the media, and the Fed all played roles in the internet bubble. But when it all is said and done, it was primarily a story of greed and gullibility on the part of the American public. And so that was the greatest bubble we've seen yet. And... People have short memories. There's so much more in this book. I, I strongly recommend that anybody who's interested in this topic really needs to read the whole book because there's we only covered eight percent of the book
1: <laughs>
0: in this podcast today. There's ninety-two percent of that text is still covered, and there's more detail and more stories. And it's it's but the but the gist is the same bubbles. They exist. Their similarities. They're all unique and different, but they're so similar when they develop. And they don't have to be this broad. This was the broadest, biggest one ever. You can see bubbles developing in an individual company sometimes. You can see a bubble develop in an individual category like housing in 2006 and seven. You can see it in individual stocks. You can see it in cat like certain types of mutual funds from time to time. People get excited about whatever's been doing well. And then what they make the, the leap of logic is it's doing so well. And you'll have this self. You know, people will claim that, that, oh, well, there's a self-perpetuating, self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody's buying. If I buy, everybody's buying anyway. I can ride the trend. Ride the primary trend. Ride the primary trend. And that can work
1: temporarily. Yeah, we've seen it work for three or four years. 97, 98,
0: 99. We did. And, and we've seen a big trend in U.S. large stocks from 2009 to 2019. Mm-hmm. The leadership in those big companies. And even now, they just keep on trucking. And that just feeds the engine. Hey, look! It's doing so well. It's doing so well. It's doing so well. And the lesson here is, hey, if you're going to participate in that trend, be my guest. But you need to pay attention to risk. Risk always matters. And by when you when you feel like you you have you can't lose, that's when it's most dangerous. Every time something goes for a long period of time and trends and performs above average, it can happen for years sometimes. Every time in history, at some point, you're playing musical chairs, the music's going to stop. You better make sure you have a chair. Risk matters. Rebalancing matters. Many of these people who participated in this thing and were looking phenomenally good as this bubble was developing, they were riding it all the way at the top, many, many, many of them didn't capture and retain their profits. They wrote it all the way down. And 20 years later, here we are, where Amazon.com is a huge leader in their industry. They were one of the survivors, and they've absolutely crushed a lot of things, and they, they delivered on what they said they were going to do. But I'm thinking about the hundreds of companies that used to be household names that no one even knows their name anymore. They vanished. And if you're playing odds... Odds are it's not in your favor when you're speculating, when you're participating in something that's, I'll call it, uh, bubblicious, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's just dangerous. It matters. I would avoid or at least be very careful of that Jenga tower. Just be aware of it. You don't want to be the one that makes it that's around when it comes crashing down. So I think that's all we've got today. We went a long time. Anything else that you wanted to add, Dan?
1: Uh, We live in a world of bubbles, and understanding history, knowing history, helps us to be more knowledgeable and be able to make more wiser decisions. You've said something in the past. I've always thought that the saying was about history repeats itself if you don't pay attention to history, and I'm not sure if this quote was yours or if you got this somewhere else that history, it may not repeat, but it rhymes. Yeah, I stole it. And <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> the, from whom the difference between what I the similarities, not the differences, the similarities between 1929 and what we just finished reading about with the dot com bubble, it, it was just uh, scary similar.
0: It is and and what's even scarier is how blind everyone seemed to be. Top down, bottom up, everybody for the most part was we, I mean, one of one of our former partners, years ago during this time, he had an elderly lady. I think she was in her 80s. And she was a client of his. She had a, a conservative portfolio, as you'd expect her to have. And, and in the midst of this dot-com bubble, she called, um, she called him up and said, I want to buy some stock. He goes, oh, well, what stock are you looking to buy? And she goes, I'm looking to buy some Crisco stock. And Crisco, for those of you who don't know, Um, it's a, it's a, it's a product that's, uh, basically lard. It's, it's a, it's a cooking fat. Yeah. And it comes in a tub and it's basically a tub of lard. It's, you know, you scoop it out with a spatula and it's, it's white and disgusting and tastes amazing when you cook with it. So that's, that's Crisco. And so this woman in her eighties wanted to buy some Crisco stock. She goes, well, I haven't used that product for a while, but he says, it's doing great. I think I want to buy some Crisco stock. A few questions later, uh, our former partner de- determines that uh, she was in fact talking about Cisco Systems stock, the company that makes the internet routers. I don't remember whether she bought any of that or not, but um, it, it's a story that's been told many times in, in the walls of our company just because it's a great example of people getting excited about something and they have no idea what they're, what they're doing. And so caution, caution matters, risk matters all the time. You need to pay attention to the volatility and you just need to make sure you're focused on probability,
1: not prediction. And where are you getting your information from (laughs) to make your decisions? Consider the source, good Lord. So with that, everyone,
0: thank you so very much for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please share the podcast with your friends if you think it would add value to them. If you would like to communicate with us more, We're available on social media. There's a group on Facebook called Investing and Financial Planning for Beginners. You can also reach us at Fierce Fiduciary on most social media. I'm at Brian C. Beasley at most social media, and Dan Albert as well is on social media.
1: At dan.alberth
0: at Facebook. You're on Facebook. But again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Cue the tiger.